Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Well, today I wanted to share some thinking that was spurred by some reading I did. And um, it's it's reading I do regularly. It's It's the Sunday Review of the New York Times, which is a just a must read for me. It's a sort of a social, political, cultural commentary. And I think very well done. Today, I wanted to start right in and I'll sort of uh, expound on some integral principles as I go. The, um, as you can see, the the cover article is is called uh, Stop Counting Women. Quotas and tallies won't bring real progress on gender parity. And of the, I think, 18 articles in the Sunday Review, seven of, of them are about this, you know, ongoing cultural struggle uh, between men and women, male and female, and the gender and all of it. And I want to start with an article that I found just really interesting. And it's written by Michelle Goldberg, who is reliably progressive, excuse me, progressive columnist for the New York Times. And it's an article about a feminist that I'd kind of forgotten about, but she was big in the culture wars of the 70s and 80s, that first wave of feminism. Andrea Dworkin, D-W-O-R-K-I-N. As Michelle Goldberg quotes Andrea Dworkin, she says, I'm a radical feminist, not the fun kind. (laughs) And that's the title of the column, Not the Fun Kind of Feminist. And it's about a resurgence in interest and respect for Dworkin. And here's how Michelle Goldberg talks about it. She starts by by writing, For decades now, Andrea, Andrea Dworkin has existed in the feminist imagination, mostly as a negative example, the woman no one wanted to be an anti-porn, anti-prostitution militant in the feminist sex wars of the late 70s and 80s. She sometimes seemed like a misogynist caricature of a woman's women's rights activist, a puritanical battle axe and overalls out to smite men for their appetites. Dworkin never actually wrote that all sex is rape, a claim often attributed to her. But she did see heterosexual intercourse as almost metaphysically degrading, calling it in her 1987 book, Intercourse, quote, the pure, sterile, formal expression of men's contempt for women, unquote. Feminism, this is Michelle Goldberg again, feminism would spend decades defining itself against her bleak, dogmatic vision. She goes on to write, so it's been striking to see that recently, feminists have started invoking Dworkin, who died in 2005, in a spirit of respect and rediscovery. Now, Goldberg points out that Dworkin is still officially wrong politically, according to the feminist orthodoxy. She writes, the resurrection of Dworkin's work and reputation is in some ways quite strange because her contemporary admirers tend to reject her central political commitments. Dworkin, who'd turned tricks as a broke bohemian young woman, 
wanted to outlaw prostitution and pornography. And in the 1980s, she made an alliance with the religious right to push anti-pornography legislation. There's no sympathy for such a bargain in feminist circles today, where it's mostly taboo to treat sex work as distinct from any other kind of labor. But then here's where it gets interesting, because anytime we have an orthodoxy and anytime we have a taboo, <laughs> you know, they just become targets. And in some ways, they're markers for something that needs to be broken up. And that's what's happening here. And here's Goldberg again. She says, the renewed interest in Dworkin is a sign that for many women, our libidinous culture feels neither pleasurable nor liberating. And then she goes on to quote a young woman as saying, me and my peers, we believed in this sort of fairy tale that there was a line of demarcation that was very clear between rape and non-consensual acts on one hand and consent on the other. We all knew where the line was and everything on the side of consent was great and it was an expression of our freedom. But that's not the experience of sex that a lot of people are having. And then here's Goldberg again. She says, in explaining this, Think of the woman who told a reporter last year about an encounter with the actor Aziz Ansari that she'd come to understand as sexual assault, though she didn't describe force or threat. Decades, and we all remember that story that was quite a cultural moment. It was a moment when, for a lot of people, for people be be people other than those at the far progressive side of really exquisitely feeling into these new spaces of consent and conditioned mind and all of that stuff, which I'll get into in a minute. But, you know, for most modernists, certainly traditionalists, it was a, it was a jump of the shark that uh, Ansari story. But anyway, Goldberg writes decades earlier, Dworkin created a political framework for viewing such an experience, one most would probably write off as bad sex, but she described it as a violation. In a 1975 lecture, she described, quote, presumptive rape, unquote, as one in which, quote, the constraint on the victim's will is in the circumstance itself. There has been no mutuality of choice and understanding, unquote. And she goes on, consent, she insisted, had to mean more than just acquiescence. And, um, and so, yeah, uh, there is a, a big gray area in between those, what this one young woman who was quoted as saying, the bright line between consensual and non-consensual. And I remember when I was doing some research on the question, is there rape in the animal kingdom? The big answer is not really very much. There's some behavior among some primates and some other animals that, that would pass for, you know, really holding down the female and raping her. But for the most part, it falls in this category of pestering. And that pestering is everywhere. 
but birds, insects, fish, certainly mammals. Uh, and it's just where the male pesters the female and just keeps at her until finally she says, you know, okay, just be quick about it and get it over with. And that is an oft-told story. You know, some version of that is an oft-told story uh, among human beings for sure and has been for a long time. So this idea that this, this sort of new puritanical idea that is questioning the whole sort of sexual revolution. And there's this, these realizations that are coming online that are, you know, wanting to integrate with this ideology of just, you know, sexual freedom. And that's progress. If, if people always say, you know, what's an example of integration? And the biggest one and the most obvious one is the integration of how men and women have um, integrated the masculine and feminine poles. And I know I've talked about that a couple times here and the polarity between masculine masculinity and femininity <clears throat> is actually seen as basic to the creation of the cosmos. That, there is, that, that reality arises out of the tension between the active pole on one side and the receptive pole on the other. Or as in Zen Buddhism, they talk about it as plus and zero. And that that is sort of the fundamental animating energetic of creation. And then those are personified because we feel them in our own bodies and we feel them in our own psyches. And for humans, the masculine pole is the pole that's challenging, while the feminine pole is nurturing. The masculine is stoic. The feminine is expressive, emotional. The male is disciplined the female spontaneous, the male wants to adore, and the female wants to be adored. And you can feel the juice of these, you know, and the evolutionary potency of these. I always love the lines from Walt Whitman where he writes, out of the dimness, opposite polarity, opposite equals advance. Always substance and increase, always sex, always the knit of identity, always distinction, always the breed of life, right? And so human beings have always felt this polarity in themselves. And it, it wasn't always so that masculinity was the sole province of men and femininity was the sole province of women. That evolved. But there's a lot of research now that shows that early indigenous cultures are pretty egalitarian. And that just makes sense because these cultures are pre-moral in the way that we think of them as following laws of God or whatever. And, um, and so, you know, people would just naturally do what they could for the tribe. 
And that would be how it would work. And that's so vast majority of human history. But as we evolved into tribal and then particularly the warrior stages where we built these great empires and developed the patriarchy, then it got really extreme. And that was actually a way forward. And women participated in that. But, you know, once we get to modernity, uh, we no longer need that. Women are, you know, free to get educated and go work in the, you know, commerce and men are free to do things that women used to do. And we can see that when we look at the relationship of our grandparents, our parents, our own relationships, that of our children, what's happening now in terms of women just insisting on being seen as, you know, fully valuable and fully real. I always love this quote from Dworkin. In fact, I'll see if I can find it. Yeah, here it is. As she wrote of several esteemed male writers in a 1995 preface to Intercourse, quote, I love the literature these men created, but I will not live my life as if they are real and I am not. I love that because we all want to be real and we all want to have it all in a way. We all want to be able to choose from this, this smorgasbord, this panorama of traditionally masculine and feminine behaviors. Now, the next article that I wanted to feature here is the article that is right below the one on Dworkin, and it's called, It's Not That Men Don't Know What Consent Is. And uh, the subtitle is, They Often Understand That What They're Doing Is Wrong, Then They Do It Anyway. And this is by Peggy Ornstein. And she uh, deals a lot with social science research that shows that, as she puts it, young men still too often prioritize their pleasure over women's feelings. They interpret a partner's behavior through the lens of their own wishes. Their claims of miscommunication may actually be a part of an expectation that they control both partners' narratives about desire and consent. And I want to read that again. Their claims, the young men's claims of miscommunication may actually be part of an ex expectation that they control both partners' narratives about desire and consent. And um, she points out that one in four men believe that women, quote, usually have to be convinced in order for sex to happen. One in four men believe that. Uh, and I'm surprised it isn't higher, actually. In my generation, it probably is. Uh, she points out that the research also shows that only one in 10 women agree with that statement, that women usually have to be convinced. So, you know, there we see a statistical representation of this pestering thing. And this sort of idea of in masculinity that the male is the actor and the woman is the vessel to be acted upon. And we often hear about millennials and younger people having less sex. And, you know, there's all kinds of theories about why that is. But, you know, I'm thinking that maybe until 
we get this sorted out, or better put, they get this sorted out. This ship has sailed for my generation, I think, for a lot of us at least. That, you know, this idea of the male holding all the masculine the pole and the woman holding the feminine pole is just not good enough. And it's also not good enough to just turn it into some kind of a blenderized, muddled middle where neither party is willing to take a stand on the masculine or feminine side of the street. And that is a recipe for a juiceless relationship, uh, flaccid, if you'll pardon the expression. So what we want, we, in, in Integral, we talk about differentiation and integration. So we want to differentiate. We want to see all of these behaviors that are typically masculine, typically feminine, and see how they work together, and see how they create juice and spark, and then develop a fluidity where we have full command, or at least a fuller command, and um, ability to integrate them in a way that's fun. You know, maybe just as simple as that. So that sort of requires both parties, the male and the female, if you will, in heterosexual relationships, to be fully engaged and online and one not subject to the other. And I think that is, it's, it's, it's an ideal for sure, but it's worth holding as an ideal. And... Um, and that's where I think that these, both of these articles, I fear that they jump the shark politically in the sense that, as I said, there's maybe, you know, 20% of the population really get what they're talking about here. And the rest of the population really has a reaction to it. It's like, for instance, to call what Aziz Ansari did to call that assault is pushing it. And, uh, and you know, Aziz Ansari himself came out and said that he learned a lot from this and he saw things that he needed to see and so forth. There was a teaching to be had here. But it completely left the woman powerless. And that's the other side of this, that at least in these articles, and particularly the article on the men don't know what consent is, She's um, pointing out, you know, the problem that men have, but there's a problem that women have too. Okay, so she, again, she's looking at all this social science research about how men think and and how they misread these situations and how they do it, sort of to serve their own interests. And she sums it up by saying that this research that she cites indicates that women's accusations in these cases that go to court, women's accusations are inherently more credible than male denial, regardless of how vehement that denial may be. And again, I think that's a shark jump. And uh, I, I know my enlightenment alarms go off there, you know, that you know, everybody's equal in the eyes of the law. And uh, that's going to be a very, very hard sell, even though I know what she's talking about. And then she has the you know, obligatory final paragraph about what needs to be done. And this is that we need to fully educate boys. 
Yes, of course. And that's happening in the culture. I mean, my God, it's everywhere. And everybody's getting educated in real time. I am too. I've said this before that, you know, I see women as more as people than women than I did two years ago before the Me Too and all of that. And I think a lot of people are really learning a lot here. So, okay, we need to fully educate boys, not only about the importance of consensual, ethical, mutually pleasurable sexuality, but also about the ways their own sense of entitlement may blind them to those values, leading them to cause harm, whether or not they choose to see it. And I think that's right. And, um, you know, maybe it's another article, but it also needs to be said that girls need to be educated to recognize the same thing. You know, these patterns of conditioning, of submission, of seeing the boy's needs as more important than her own. To then actually learn how to say, no, stop. I mean, that's not what the girl with Aziz Ansari did. And then, you know, to, to communicate and to have this full, more full integration of the masculine and feminine in both people. And that is, I think, you know, really where evolution is taking us. And according to this edition of the Sunday Review, evolution is taking us far and fast. Which brings me to another couple articles that I want to point out that um, basically illuminate this other aspect of evolution, which is that we all have a bigger field to play in. And they offer a couple astonishing examples of how men and women are taking on the traditionally opposite role. The first is from the cover article titled, Stop Counting Women. Quotas and Tallies Won't Bring Real Progress on Gender Parity. And it makes the very reasonable and I think more politically appealing point that quotas are off-putting, quotas concretize things in ways that are better dealt with by just using one's judgment. Not the most profound thesis in the world, but I think it's an integral one, actually. Because although she's not saying it in so many words, the implication is that the system's working, that we're making progress in an organic way. And she gives a great example. She writes, Recently, major newspapers trumpeted the fact that women hold all of the highest positions at the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, women in all of the highest positions, plus the chief executives of four of the nation's five biggest military contractors are now women. The, the CEOs at Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, and the defense arm of Boeing. They all have hashtag lady bosses. It's hard to imagine our feminist forebears seeing female dominance of the military industrial complex as an unmixed blessing. And I think that's true uh, and very, very interesting. But here's another one that was just really 
shocking to me, and this came out of the Sunday Weekly Section 2, Sunday Review. And this is an article that says, what baby formula does for fathers. Subhead, it's harder to parent equally when you can't feed your child. And it's by Nathaniel Popper, who is the finance and tech finance and technology writer for the New York Times. So he's a little bit out of his ballywick, but it's a really interesting article. And he talks about how he and his wife had, you know, real problems with their firstborn son because it wasn't working for breastfeeding, just wasn't working. And he explains why and all the sort of contraptions that the woman hooked herself up to and all the ways they tried to make it work. And then finally, they just, you know, out of necessity, went to baby formula. And the father was able to start feeding the baby. And so he did. And as he writes, I can still remember the calm that came over him, the baby, when I finally gave him that first bottle and he began sucking and then kept going. He lay there, nestled in my forearm, and let me gaze at him. For a baby who had been constantly hungry and fussy, this moment was a wonderful gift. I had heard about the shot of endorphins that mothers got during feeding. While I don't know about the physiology in my own case, I can say that I came to associate feeding my son with a profound sense of well-being, and I assume the feeling was reciprocal. As the weeks went by, I noticed a subtler but deeper change in my relationship to my son. Now when my son cried in the night or out in public, I instinctively started toward him. Before this, my wife had been the first responder because we assumed that he probably needed to be fed. Now I was just as capable of feeding him as she was. This meant that I not only fed him, but I learned about all the times when he wasn't actually hungry but needed a burp or a clean diaper or something else that we couldn't figure out, but that was part of the essential mystery of parenting. I came to understand his rhythms and needs. And then he goes on and he finishes up by saying that unexpectedly feeding my son gave my relationship to him a depth that I as a father would have otherwise missed out on. And that has long continued after he stopped drinking from a bottle. So, you know, that's just amazing to me when I think about, you know, integration. We're actually talking about oxytocin, you know, and that men are able to feel it when they feed their child in this way. And that is, you know, a real integration, even in the upper right quadrant, the physical body. So, um, yeah, there was a, there's an article about why the priesthood needs women by Alice McDermott, the novelist. And it's a really very good. You know, the Catholic Church is at such a crossroads here. And let me read what she wrote. Again, this is about, you know, women exerting power in an organization that was, you know, traditional. It's a traditional organization. Women didn't exert power as a rule. So here she writes. For myself and for many of the Catholics I know, especially women, the question of how much corruption we can tolerate 
is now weighed against the tremendous loss we would feel if we left this church. It's an institution that has shaped us, comforted us, guided and informed us, that is the center of our spiritual lives as well as our community lives and family lives, the source of our own moral strength, of our faith in the substance of things hoped for. And yet small commiserations can no longer placate our outrage. A sea change is required. And I love this next paragraph because it reminds me of the women in my life when I was a kid. And um, she writes, Lately, as I have listened to the conversations of my dismayed and discouraged fellow Catholics, I have thought of the Catholic women who have shaped my own faith. Nuns, teachers, mothers, friends. I've recalled the particular sound of these women's voices when they have come to the end of their patience. It's a calm, powerful, sober sound, a formidable voice that can bring children up short, silence excuses, restore order to chaos. It's the voice of a woman saying simply, all right, that's enough. It's the voice the Catholic hierarchy needs to hear. Can you feel that voice getting into the hierarchy? And this may be the shape of things to come, but of course not if Ross Douthat has his way. And later in the section, he has a column, Why Celibacy Matters, where he defends the traditional sexual structures of the church and um, doesn't do a very good job, it seems to me. Um, Here's what he is saying. His basic argument for the celibacy and the traditional male hierarchy is that it is tied to the New Testament. And he says that Catholicism is constantly asked to, quote, reform away practices that are there because they connect directly to the New Testament. In the case of celibacy, to Jesus' own example and his hard words for anyone making an idol of family life. This this reform, he says, seems like a bad bargain, no matter how much hypocrisy there may be in Rome. That clerical celibacy doesn't guarantee asceticism is obvious, but it preserves the call even when the system is corrupted. And to lose that call in this era of scandal and unfinished purgation could easily leave only the corruption, undiluted and unchecked. Except he really undermines his own argument at the beginning of the column when he talks about, you know, no matter what the sexual mores of the time, they're always anti-Catholic. And he goes through history. And he describes this. He says, the rhetoric of anti-Catholicism, whether its sources are Protestant or secular, has always insisted that the Church of Rome is the enemy of what you might call healthy sexuality. This rhetorical trope has persisted despite radical redefinitions of what healthy sexuality means. One sexual culture overthrows another but Catholicism remains internally condemned. And then he explains, he says, in a 19th century context, 
where healthy sexuality meant a large patriarchal family with the wife as the angel in the home. Anti-Catholic polemicists were obsessed with Catholicism's nuns, these women who mysteriously refused husbands and childbearing, and who were therefore presumed to be prisoners in Gothic convents, victims of predatory priests. Turns out they actually were, in many cases, and still are. In India, the big Catholic sexual scandal is about nuns who are rising up and speaking out against the sexual oppression they've felt for years from priests. So, you know, he goes on. Then a little later, when the apostles of sexual health were Victorian, quote, muscular Christians, worried about moral deviance, the problem with Catholicism was that it was too hospitable to homosexuality, too effete, too decadent, too Oscar Wildean, even before Wilde's deathbed conversion. So it turns out that that is true, too, that the Catholic Church turned out to be one of the few respectable avenues for gay men who couldn't see themselves living the family life. And so they, you know, took that path and we could see the fallout of that. Then he goes on. Then later still, when sexual health meant that white American two kids nuclear family the problem with Catholicism was that it was too obsessed with heterosexual procreation, too inclined to overpopulate the world with kids. And there's some truth to that, too. I can remember being incensed by the tours that Pope Paul II would do in Africa, where he would rail against not abortion, but abortion too, but also birth control. And, you know, that's not a positive thing. Then next, he, and then he goes into, and now, in our own age of sexual individualism, Catholicism is mostly just accused of a repressive cruelty, of denying people, and especially its celibacy-burdened priests, the sexual fulfillment that every human being needs. Guilty again, church. So, um, yeah, so maybe this thing that you've tra traced back to the New Testament isn't healthy and never has been as you just described. So, just saying. All right, folks, I think we'll wrap it up here for now. Again, these were highlights from a few articles in one week of the Sunday Review of the New York Times, and I think represents another brick in the highway of sexual evolution. Thank you so much for listening to The Daily Evolver. Again, you can find all my stuff at dailyevolver.com. I thank you again to Integral Life for hosting us live. And um, okay, thank you. See you next time on The Daily Evolver. Bye, folks. <laughs>